Hi, I'm Patricia Grabarek. And I'm Katina Sawyer, and welcome to the Worker Being Podcast. Today, Katina has an article to share with us. Do you want to give us a sneak peek? Yes, I do. So today we're going to be talking about ostracism in the workplace. And a lot of the literature has talked about ostracism and the negative consequences of ostracism. And while I'm not going to be discussing ostracism as a positive thing to do towards others, sometimes ostracism can have some unexpected consequences uh, in a positive direction and it can make it confusing for managers to recognize when someone's being ostracized. So we're going to talk about how to recognize when people are being ostracized and how to buffer the impact of ostracism when it occurs. Nice. Okay. That makes sense. And I know we've talked about this before um, or this concept before. So I'm curious to see what this additional research has to say. So I'm excited. Yes. Yes, ostracism is getting to be a much more popular topic in the literature over the last few years. So I'm excited to talk about it, too. Um, In the meantime, what has been going on with you? Oh, goodness. Day 700,000 of quarantine. Um, (laughs) Things have been going okay over here. It's been busy. Um, We just got like these new blinds put in for some of our light or windows. Um, We have like these windows up on the loft side that make it super hot when the middle of the the heat of the day and shine right into Danny's workspace. So we've got these like blinds for them, which is going to be really nice. I think we're going to save some energy and money by being able to use them. So that was like a big, a big win today for us because it's been nice. a long time of us wanting to get them installed and like we had a bunch of um, like we have to have like a crazy tall ladder to do that which we do not have access to. Um, yeah. So we got someone to come out and do it but they canceled on us like three times. So oh, no. we were like ready to go to somebody else and try to figure it out but then they showed up and actually did a good job today. So I guess good. the cancellations were not the biggest issue in the end, but uh, yeah. That's good. I'm glad you finally got your blinds. <laughs> That's lovely. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, from a home improvement perspective, when we moved in here, um, we found out that the house has an irrigation system. And so, oh. um, yeah. And like the previous owners were very meticulous about leaving all of the like manuals for everything and the instructions for how to work all the different stuff that's in the house but they didn't leave anything about this irrigation system and I don't know how to work an irrigation system at all (laughs) so I googled the manual online and found it but it's basically your yards are divided up into zones and so obviously a generic manual can't tell us what zone is which or it can't tell us where the system is. And there's two types of systems. There's a drip system that's underground and a sprinkler system that's above ground. And we thought for sure we had a drip system because we've never seen any sprinklers. And so I had at first turned it on and thought, okay, we'll be able to tell which zone is which if we just keep an eye on it and if I water the zones on different days we'll be able to tell okay this dirt is wet on this day and that dirt's wet on that day and so it'll be fine we can figure it out but then we like weren't able to tell and then there was all this runoff water that was coming out of our front garden box onto the sidewalk and Brendan was like you know let's just turn this thing off because we don't know 
how it's working. And I said, let's call somebody to come out and look at it. So I <laughs> called somebody to come out and look at it. And I felt like such an idiot because he came out to look. And I said, when he first got here, you know, we're not really sure how it works, but we've been turning it on in the front and the back. And, you know, I'm pretty sure that this is zone one and this is zone two based on the moisture of the soil, but I'm not sure. And then we were getting all this runoff and, you know, we just turned it off because we didn't want to back up water or mess it up. And, you know, we thought we'd figure out how it works before we keep running it. And I'm, you know, I think it's a drip system that's underneath the dirt. So I can't really tell, you know, what it's doing. So it would be great to get some more information about how long we have to run it for and all that kind of stuff. So he's kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever, lady. Like, <laughs> you really have no idea what's going on. So he's like, oh, bring me down to the basement and let me see uh, where it's set up. So I show him the thing and whatever. And um, he like opens the wall and in two seconds, he's like, well, that runoff water was definitely not from this system. And there's no way that you could have known where it was going back and forth between the two zones because the water to it is not turned on. It's still <laughs> winterized. <laughs> So literally it's been receiving no water and it's not even been turned on because when the when the water turnoff is off it doesn't even try to go. So you turned it on from an electronic perspective but from an actual like acting on what's been set up it's not going to do it unless the water's on and I was like cool cool. And then that's amazing. Uh I uh, yeah, so then I said, you know, I I would love to see if we could figure out where the zones are, whatever. And he's like, yeah, okay. I set it to go off in three minutes. So uh, let's go upstairs and back to the backyard in the front yard and see what happens. And literally it goes off and like 20 sprinklers, like shoot out of the dirt <laughs> and start putting water everywhere all over the yard. And I was like, wow, like it is sprinklers. I thought it was under the ground. And <laughs> the man's like, you're so dumb. I'm, he like showed up and I'm like, we're having a water problem. All this water's coming out of it and it's under the ground and I don't know where it is. And then meanwhile, it's not under the ground. The water could not possibly have been coming from. I'm like, okay, I guess I don't understand anything about this. So I'm just going to shut up now. So they taught us about it. Now it runs lovely, but before we were just big big morons like putting sticks in the dirt and being like I think this one's moist compared to that one like nothing's happening <laughs> like idiots so, and yeah. they're like wow I don't know what you guys were seeing here but that's no hilarious. <laughs> that is I swore amazing. that there was a difference but there clearly was not it was just in my mind <laughs> well I wouldn't know what to do either and I would probably assume the same thing, that if I don't see the sprinklers, well, clearly not sprinklers. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And I was also just so surprised because we've spent a decent amount of time out there and I've never, they were really like under the dirt and they just like triumphantly came forth and started like spraying water all <laughs> over the yard. <laughs> it's like, wow, we they are live here. in there? Yeah. <laughs> That's really it was funny. very fascinating. That's so anyway, really it's all fixed and our plants were dying and now I know why. So <laughs> I'm watering them now and hopefully they come back to life now that they're actually receiving water. Oh my goodness. That, yes, that's really funny. Well, yes. I would be the same as you. I would also be terrible at figuring it out. So I understand. I totally understand. 
Yep. So it's a whole thing. But then I guess that's the only way that you learn. Our friends were saying that they thought that they had a broken um, like light fixture, like that the actual like whatever the socket was broken and they called an electrician and he came out and was like, look, I'm not going to charge you much for this. But just so you know, you just had to change the light bulb. <laughs> <laughs> and so they had told us that. So I texted them and said, just so you feel better, um, we called someone out to try to fix our irrigation system and the water wasn't turned on. So don't feel so bad that you called an electrician to change a light bulb because. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So yeah, many fails. So. But. We're all I, bad at these things. I feel like you learn over time. And yes. uh, and if you have to call someone for help, that's okay. Which leads that's to our true. article because it has to yeah. do with help, right? Yes, it does have to do with help. That was a very good transition. And yes, our <laughs> article has to do with help and ostracism. So uh, this article is called When Self-View is at Stake, Responses to Ostracism Through the Lens of Self-Verification Theory. And it is by Zhu Huang and Robinson, and it was published in 2017 in the Journal of Management. Okay, so tell us, like, the key points and takeaways, and then, like, dive in. I want to know all the details. Yeah, so basically, ostracism is feeling ignored or feeling excluded or feeling like you're invisible to others at work. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty common experience. So something important to know about ostracism is that it happens fairly frequently to individuals in the workplace. Not that it happens daily for most people, but for example, in surveys, about 13% of people say that they have experienced ostracism at work in the last six months. Oh, and sixty, yeah, and sixty-six percent of employees say that they've experienced ostracism in the last five years. So most people have at some point experienced workplace ostracism, feeling like they've been um, ignored or excluded or made to feel invisible at work. And most of the research on ostracism looks at the negative implications of ostracism. So people who are ostracized have lower job satisfaction, they have lower commitment, and they have lower well-being. And that's all still true within this study. So I don't want to lose sight of the fact that ostracism in general has negative implications for your health and well-being. So in no way am I promoting ostracism. But there are different behavioral reactions that stem from ostracism that researchers are still trying to figure out. So the way that people actually respond to ostracism is not fully unpacked. Mm -hmm. And more so, people have focused on the negative responses that people have to ostracism. So people might withdraw from their work group or you might take like a revenge mentality, like, oh, you're going to leave me out, I'm going to leave you out, or I'm going to do something um, that's going to sabotage you or uh, make things uh, you know, more difficult for you at work. And what this article is looking at is that under certain circumstances, when people are ostracized, they actually internalize it in a way that feels damaging to their identity and their motivation instead of trying to hurt others at work actually ends up that they try to help others at work under certain circumstances. So 
when individuals are in these circumstances, they are actually more likely to display positive behaviors as a result of ostracism compared to negative behaviors. And that can sometimes make it difficult for people to pick up on when someone's being ostracized because it looks like they're just getting along with everyone and everything's fine. That's so interesting. So it's basically like I get left out and then instead of being sad and showing it in some way where I'm like visibly having a negative reaction, I decide to like help those people that just left me out. Is that right? Yes. Yes, exactly. So the theory that the paper uses, and this is a really good theory for well-being because it's related to a lot of different mental health and well-being related measures. Uh, The theory that it uses is called self-verification theory. And this theory basically says that everybody likes to have a view of themselves that aligns with the view that they think other people have of them. So if I see myself as a really good, nice person, I would like others to view me as a good, nice person as well. Or if I view myself as really creative, I would like other people to view me as creative. Or if I see myself as a good friend, I want other people to view me as a good friend. So everybody likes to have a self-view that's verified by other people, which is why it's called self-verification theory. And when you feel like your self-view, the way you think about yourself, is not verified by others, that can be a really distressing experience. And that's why ostracism on the whole is distressing to people because people feel marginalized and they're not sure why. And so they basically start to wonder if the way they view themselves is the way other people view them. So I think of myself as a good person. What might be the reason why other people might leave me out? And one of those reasons might be, well, maybe I'm not the person I think I am. Because if I were, other people wouldn't exclude me. So generally, ostracism is really negative for people's well-being because it creates this distressing experience where you don't feel like you're the person that you want to be in the eyes of others. Got it. Okay. So it's still, even though the person is reacting and doing something positive with the helping behavior, it's from an internal perspective, it's still bad. Yes, correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, So right now in this article, we're talking about behavioral outcomes. And sometimes that's all that you'll be able to see as a manager or as a coworker. Um, And so it's important to think about how people respond so that you can actually actively address ostracism. And the main takeaway from a personal perspective is that ostracism is not positive, but it may be hidden. This negative experience of ostracism might be hidden behind the shroud of what look like positive behaviors. Okay. So it seems like then from what we learned from this article, one, as a person that's going through ostracism, if you are doing things that are really positive, trying to help, et cetera, if you catch yourself doing that, you may be almost doing yourself a disservice because other people are not recognizing that there's something bad going on so they can step up and fix the problem. And then Mm -hmm. if you're external to the person, so if you are part of the group that's doing the ostracizing, or if you're just outside of that, you're a leader and, you know, your team members are ostracizing one other person, one specific team member. If you see that person's helping a lot, you might think that they're getting along because they're obviously doing great things and being positive, but you really just need to keep a good eye out on it and see, is somebody helping a lot and too much and why? And are you seeing other behaviors that might hint that they're being left out and they're doing this compensation with this helping behavior, right? Right, exactly. Yep, that's 100% correct. Um, And so what this paper looks at is, is it the case that some ostracized individuals might 
react by helping others. And they also look at another behavior, which is not just increases in pro-social behavior, but also decreases in social loafing. And social loafing is kind of exactly what it sounds like. The idea that you stop contributing to a group um, and sort of let others take the reins. So it's like when you're in a group project and you know, one person is really annoying because they don't do any of the work. That person would be called a social loafer. And so in group contexts, sometimes you can get away with social loafing and people will try to get away with social loafing. And so they think that under certain circumstances, individuals who are ostracized will not only be more likely to help others, but they'll also be less likely to socially loaf within the group, which is another form of um, avoiding negative contributions and making more positive contributions possible. So they're trying to basically prove themselves in a way. Exactly. Yep. Um, and so the I keep saying under certain circumstances, so I'm going to get into those circumstances now. Um, oh, perfect. So the circumstances that make ostracized individuals more likely to engage in pro-social versus antisocial behaviors and decrease the likelihood that they'll engage in more withdrawal behaviors from the work group are two things. One is a high level of in-group identification with the group. So if they see the in-group identity as being a significant part of who they are, then they may be more likely to view ostracism as more distressing and want to reinstate themselves as a member of the group. Mm -hmm. So if I'm particularly identified with the group and I'm being ostracized from the group, I'm much more likely to try to get back into the group's good graces as opposed to if I already don't really care about being a member of a group and now I'm ostracized from the group, I may be more likely to be like, well, forget you. You know, I don't really care if you don't like me. I don't like you either and move on. So group identification is one thing that might make it more likely that ostracized individuals will help. So I think that's really interesting. And it makes a lot of sense because it goes back to everything you said in terms of this theory with verifying who you are, right? And um, and making sure that your identity with that group like aligns. You want to make sure everyone yeah. knows that that's who you are. So if you're... I'm trying to think of like an example. <laughs> this is like a little of a struggle for me right now when I'm thinking about a work group. So like if you're okay, here we go. If you are part of a team at work and you're on a, you know, your team with your own specific, you know, all people in the same job title, right? And you really feel strongly about your position, your job, the type of work you do, and being part of this group at work. So like, I'm just thinking of like my work role, right? You know, we're like the science team and being part of the science team. Like you really identify with being part of the science team because you're a scientist and you think it's cool and you're excited about it and that's who you are. And so if you get ostracized from that team, because you want to be a scientist, you're going to feel like, okay, I have to, I have to help. I have to make sure people recognize I am part of this team. I am a scientist too. Mm -hmm. And I, I really feel strongly about that. But then there could be other people that are in the same group that are just like, uh, this is just a job. I don't care about being a scientist. Not a big deal. And then if they're ostracized, they're just like, whatever, these scientists, nerds, I don't care. <laughs> yep. Okay. Yes, exactly. You got it. So if it's a group that you really care about being a part of, you really like the people in it, or like you're saying you have some part of, um, some really important part of your identity is also in their identity. So let's say even in personal life, if you're ostracized from your family, 
the people that raised you and were surrounded, you were surrounded by when you were growing up are usually more important to you than other random groups of people. So Mm -hmm. you identify more strongly with your family unit than you do with other people. And so being ostracized by your family can be more painful than being ostracized by another group. So it's either that you have some sort of special bond with those individuals or you perceive that you should have a special bond with those individuals or that there's something about that group that you really want to have that, like you're saying, like I really want to be seen as a scientist and if the scientists are ostracizing me, maybe that means that I'm not a scientist and so I have to work my way back into that group. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what else do we learn about this? Yeah. Group? So Seth, is that the only circumstance or is there something no. else? No. So the other circumstance is for employees that have longer tenure, they tend to have longer working relationships with their coworkers. Mm -hmm. And that means that their coworkers are assumed to know or understand them well. And so you would take more seriously evaluations that come from coworkers who ostensibly should know you better as a person. When they ostracize you, you're more likely to find that distressing because you can't just write it off as like, well, that's because they don't really know me or they're not aware of what I'm capable of or they might be making a judgment about me that's not based in reality. If you've known your if you've been around longer and you you have like a deeper set of relationships within your organization, ostracism will be more harmful to you because you're you're feeling as if there's not really an excuse that they just don't know how valuable you could be. Yeah, that makes sense. It makes me think of like, um, like kids at school. I feel like there these stories always happen like in middle school or going into high school where like groups shift, right? Like people's mm-hmm. cliques and yep. groups shift. So like if you're the new kid at school and someone doesn't include you and leaves you out, you can just, I mean, kids have a hard time putting you know doing this appropriately but you might be able to chalk it up to um okay I'm the new kid at school that's why they don't want me involved that's why they don't care about you know inviting me to lunch or whatever um Mm -hmm. but then if I've been in the school with the same students for a very long time and then all of a sudden the groups are shifting and I'm left out from a relationship that I already had you know we've been friends with these people for years all of a sudden that is way more devastating for me mm-hmm. as a child. And yep. that obviously applies in the workplace too, because that's to do with relationships. Um, so unless you get a clear signal or clear information as to why somebody's behaving a certain way, you're going to take it more personally. And then it sounds like from that um, kind of verification standpoint, like now you have to ingratiate yourself back into that group because some, maybe you did something wrong and you want it to be fixed. You want to be back in the group again. Yep, Exactly. That's exactly right. So um, the longer you've been around, the more likely it is that you'll think that the perceptions of others are accurate and not just on a whim. And so it's more distressing that you correct those um, potentially negative perceptions compared to if you just can say, well, they don't really know me and that, you know, that's not really something that I need to worry about as a person. It's not part. It's not about me. Um, it's harder to say it's not about me when people ostensibly know you better. Um, and then the second part is that if you really want to be part of the group, that also makes ostracism um, experienced differently and makes it more likely that you'll try to get yourself back in with the group compared to not. So those mm-hmm. are the two circumstances. And that makes a lot of sense. So I think that's pretty clear 
and obvious for most people can understand why yeah. that would happen. So what would, what, I mean, what did they find in terms of anything that we should be taking away from this study or anything else yeah. you want to share about that? Yeah. So they collected this data in a call center in China okay. and they located a number of teams and randomly selected 10 10 of these teams and they were pretty large teams about 25 or so people um and they selected these teams uh to participate in the survey and they collected data at two time points uh separated by a month apart so to try to get at predictive so at time one what was happening and then at time two you can have a little bit more confidence that maybe the things at time one are predicting the things at time two. Mm-hmm. Um, so they collected whether or not someone was ostracized, how much they identify with the group, their tenure and a bunch of control variables, um, gender and age and things like that at time one. And then they collected their criterion variables, helping behavior and social loafing from the person's supervisor at time two. So they got an objective standpoint or a more objective standpoint on the extent to which the person was helpful or the person was loafing because they got it from the supervisor as opposed to asking the person themselves. And people generally tend to like to see themselves more positively. So (laughs) you might skew up how much you're helping and skew down how much you're loafing if you ask the person themselves. Yeah, I like that. I think that makes a lot of sense to ask the supervisor. Yeah. So the just to give some examples of the types of questions that they asked. For ostracism, questions were things like, my group members ignore me at work or my group members avoid me at work. Um, For group identification, they ask questions like, I strongly identify with other members of my work group or I feel emotionally attached to this work group. And then for helping, they ask the supervisor, does this employee volunteer to do things for the group or does this employee attend things that would help this group? Um, And for loafing, they ask the um, supervisor whether the employee was a freeloader whether the employee was contributing less than they would anticipate or whether they think the employee is doing the best that they can on the team. And then of course, tenure was just how long you've worked for the um, group in the number of years. Right. So So those are the types of questions they asked. And what they found was basically what they set out to find with regard to helping. Not all of the findings worked out with regard to loafing. So with regard to um, helping first, Mm -hmm. uh, both Um, what they found was that, um, the interaction of being ostracized and identifying with the group both predicted higher levels of helping behavior and lower levels of social loafing. So the more you identify with the group when you're ostracized, the more you help and the less you loaf. So exactly what we were talking about. I really want to get back into this group. I want to be in their good graces. So if they're going to leave me out, I'm going to turn around and try to be as helpful as I can be. And as active as I can be in the group in order to try to get back into their good graces. So that worked for both helping and social loafing. For tenure, the three-way interaction, as we would say, only worked for helping behavior and not for loafing. So when someone's ostracized and they identify with the group, they're even more likely to help when they have a longer tenure. But they're not more likely to, they're not less likely to loaf when they have a higher tenure. So for loafing, it seems like identification matters, but not tenure as much. And for um, helping both matter in terms of amplifying the extent to which you help. Okay, interesting. So why do you think it didn't work? I mean, this is obviously just speculation. Maybe they had some ideas as to why it didn't work for both. 
Yeah. I kind of feel that helping is an extra role behavior where like, so you don't have to help other people in order to do your job well. Right. But loafing kind of is your job performance. And so I wonder if people with longer tenure just have been around for a long time because they're fairly good at their jobs. And so they're just not more or less likely to loaf as a result of that variable because if you've been around for a while, your loafing might be more static. Like you might just be less likely to loaf in general. I wonder if it's the supervisor piece too. Like if I've worked with somebody for a long time if as a leader, I yeah. might not notice someone that's been with us for 10 years that they're loafing because generally right. they've been doing a great job. So I'm not even seeing it or paying as much attention to it as I might for someone that's lower in tenure. Right. Yeah. That, that could totally be true. Um, and I think that, you know, something interesting is that individuals who identified with the group at a low level and people who identified highly with the group, but hadn't been ostracized were basically the same on social loafing. So um, the extent to which you identify with the group and whether or not you loaf is not super related, except for if you've been ostracized and you identify with the group, all of a sudden you decrease your loafing. So to your point, um, there may be something around the supervisor, there may be something around the person, or it may just be that really the only change happens when you feel all of a sudden like your group status is in jeopardy something Mm -hmm. stands out to you you know what I mean yeah and you're and you're loafing or you're less likely to loaf but with regard to tenure it didn't seem like it had that um it didn't seem like it had that same impact so anyway I think it's kind of a up in the air why but from an identification standpoint it looks like people only kind of act when they're in jeopardy and uh from from a tenure standpoint it seems like that sort of um that's sort of only the case under certain circumstances so I know that's like a little bit complicated but that's kind of how it worked out no that's interesting I think I mean I think it makes sense and I think that everything around the theory makes a lot of sense and from like a practical standpoint I don't know if there's anything else maybe before I go into practical standpoint. no no go ahead. is there anything else in terms of results no that we no know? no that's it no okay. that's it so from a practical standpoint I think it really seems like this article is kind of a wake-up call for leaders and team members to pay attention for ostracism because as an individual mm-hmm. person um you know there's only obviously there's so many things that you can do to try to get back into the group and but from your own wellness perspective it's kind of I don't know maybe I'm not thinking about this fully but I feel like it's a little hard to make people accept you um and if you're going above and beyond to help, then you might be getting more exhausted too and doing all these other things when your wellness is being impacted by other people's behavior. So it's it feels like a wake-up call for people as you're listening to this to think about who is helping a lot, who's going above and beyond in these types of behaviors that we need to be aware of and thinking about and making sure that it's just, you know, they're helping for other reasons and not because they're trying to supplement their well-being because of things that people are doing to them right yeah so if you see a team where there are people who are helping a lot it may not always be because they're also receiving helping from others I think uh, people often think about helping behavior as oh that person must be helping someone out because someone helped them out and that's the culture of the team you could actually have an opposite impact where 
you're excluding people, you're not helping others and some people's reaction, particularly the people that really want to be members of that group. So you're, there's a lot of potential in um, group members that really want to be a part of the group. Yeah. And so those people might be very valuable to you and you probably want to pay attention to that specific group because if they really highly identify with being in the group and you see them helping others a lot, it may not always be because, oh, it must be that someone helped them and now they're paying them back for it. It could actually be because they're having a negative experience in the group. So keeping a pulse on not just looking at behaviors and saying, oh, it always must be driven by some positive thing leads to a positive thing. It could be that there's something more complicated going on within the group. Um, and also from a helping perspective, looking at individuals who have been around for a while, they might fade into the background. You might see their helping behavior as more of like a pay it forward uh, type deal because they've been there for a long time. But it could be that they've been there for a while and people around them are forming some cliques and they're not including them because they're not in their generation or something like that. Like who knows, but keeping um, an eye on the dynamics of the group and not just the behaviors of the group, I think is really important from a leader perspective. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that's, that's where the big takeaway is, is leaders need to pay attention to this stuff and, and team members too. Like if you're able to, you know, I think from your mm-hmm. point about leaders, I think it's really important as a leader to be in tune with all of this. But if you, some team members are even closer to the situation and can see what's going on a little bit better. Um, so if you're seeing it as well, um, flag it up to your leader and, and see what's going on and figure out how to fix the problem. Yeah, definitely. And then also what the article talks about is as an individual employee that If you can increase your identification with the group, obviously you can't really do anything to increase your own tenure, but if you can increase your identification with the group, you may have more positive responses to ostracism when it happens because it's likely that it will happen compared to if it, if you don't have that identification. So one thing that they say is that just being mindful of how much or how little you identify with the group can help Mm. you to understand your own responses to ostracism and maybe guide those responses to be more versus less productive. So if you're being ostracized and your first reaction is, I want to get back at these people, think about it from an identification standpoint and say, okay, well, that's probably just because I don't really like these individuals. And maybe I should just be cognizant of the fact that I don't identify a lot with this group. And that's why I'm okay with doing these things, but it still doesn't make it right. Or saying to yourself, why, what's motivating my need to get back into the good graces of others and not going, not feeling pressure or responsible to go help others to get back in their good graces, but being just conscious of why you're doing those behaviors so that you can select them strategically as opposed to just reacting out of an emotional kind of um, reaction. So they kind of think about it as like, take if you're being ostracized, really think about what's motivating your actions and be strategic about them. There's not anything in this study that says, oh, after people helped others, they did get back into their good graces and they weren't ostracized anymore. So we don't really know how effective these behaviors are in actually doing what they're uh, purported to do. So it may be that you help others and they still ostracize you. Um, There's no guarantees. So Just being conscious of how you're using your time and energy and making sure that you're being strategic about it and not just emotionally reacting is another takeaway from this because helping behavior can take up a lot of your energy. And unless you really think it's going to work, if you're just trying to get back into people's good graces, 
um, for no reason and you're just going to be disappointed, that might set you up for a bigger, you know, blow down the line. That's a very fair point. I hadn't really thought about it that way that um, not only should you like should others be aware and trying to fix the problem, but if you're being ostracized, like you helping is not going to always get you what you want. Mm-hmm. You're, you're trying to get back into the group or get into the group at all if you haven't been there um, is not going to be a guarantee. So making sure that you're taking care of yourself, because as you mentioned early on and throughout that ostracism has a big impact on wellness. So if you're able to be aware, you know, we talk about mindfulness a lot. So try to be aware of what you're feeling, what you're thinking, how you're coping with different situations. And if you're able to be aware of it, then how can you address it and make sure you're not wasting your time and wasting your energy in places that is not, that are not fruitful for you and focus on your wellness elsewhere. If you're being ostracized and helping isn't getting you anywhere and you're still being ostracized in your group, you know, how can you reframe that situation so that you're able to move past it and take care of yourself and your wellness instead of focusing on getting back into that group and trying to help yourself understand that your identity, who you are, isn't all just because you're not part of a group that also identifies the same way doesn't mean that you aren't that thing. So trying to like let yourself understand that, okay, well, this group of scientists isn't accepting me. That doesn't mean I'm not like a good enough scientist. It just means that this group of scientists isn't accepting me. And then trying to reframe that I think is really important. So I thought that was a great, that's a great call out. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's like any other relationship. You see people in bad relationships with significant others, for example, where, you know, one person is not into the relationship and the other person's really invested in it. And you just keep trying and trying to get the person to like you and like you and like you. And like, you're just going to be disappointed in the end. Right. And it's the Mm -hmm. same thing at work. Sometimes, uh, you know, you have to, you know, you might try initially to see if you could get back into people's good graces, but if you just keep doing the same action and not getting a response, sometimes you have to be self-reflective about, well, where is this action stemming from and why does it make me feel better to do these helping behaviors? But is it actually increasing my well-being in the long term from an energy standpoint and otherwise so yeah I think just being aware of what motivates people's behaviors under circumstances of ostracism is really important and recognizing that in yourself and also recognizing that what might look like a happy helpful team could be cover up covering up something that is more insidious uh, especially when you have a highly identified work group mm-hmm well, thank you for sharing this. I think this has been very interesting and very helpful. And it's a very, um, I've said very like 10 times. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a nuanced topic with a lot of interesting sides. So I'm glad we got to unpack that a little bit. It's in from a different angle than when we talked about ostracism before. So yeah. thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Thanks for listening. And we'd love to hear from all of you, hear your stories, your insights, your questions. Um, feel free to reach out to us. You can contact us at our email, contact at workerbeing.com. You can also find us on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at WorkerBeing. And find us on our website with all sorts of good other information and articles to read. Thanks for listening. The Worker Being Podcast is hosted by us, Patricia Grabarek and Katina Sawyer, and produced by Allie Johnson. Oh.